coming up on Philosophy Talk. Time for summer reading. After 500 episodes, we were wondering, what exactly is time anyway? Time is not one thing. It's a layer of things. Physicist Carlo Rivelli, author of The Order of Time. Time definitely does not work in the way we usually think about it. The state incarcerates people. The state can make deadlines and waiting periods. Political scientist Elizabeth Cohen, author of The Political Value of Time. Those are direct relationships in which the state makes the demand on the time of the citizen. Hans wanted more time. Hans thought we had time. Poet and essayist Jane Hirschfield, author of Ledger. Transience and perishability, they are simply among our most central perplexities. What books will you take time to read this summer? The 500th episode of Philosophy Talk. Time for a summer reading list. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. We're coming to you from our respective shelters in place via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy, and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's our annual summer reading list, and it's about time. Right. Summer reading on the subject of time. Today's show, if you can believe it, is the 500th episode of Philosophy Talk. That got us thinking about the nature of time and what we might read about it over the summer. So we asked a poet, a physicist, a political scientist, and a philosopher who've all written about time to help us think more about this timeless topic. And to get us started, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, in search of lost time inside the Bay Area rapid transit system. She files this report. Reading Marcel Proust can be difficult, no matter how much spare time you have. Take this Monty Python sketch, for example. As you may remember, each contestant has to give a brief summary of Proust's a la recherche du temps perdu, once in a swimsuit and once in evening dress. In this sketch, finalists compete in the All England Summarized Proust competition. The first contestant attempts to describe Proust's work as tales of the irrevocability of time lost, the forfeiture of innocence through experience, the reinstallment of extra-temporal values of time regained. The novel is both optimistic and set within the context of a humane religious experience, restating as it does the concept of intemporality. In the first volume, Swan, the family friend, Then he runs out of time, which, if you did want to summarize Proust, is not a bad place to begin. Time is, after all, a major theme of his seven-volume masterwork. Je pouvais aller jusqu'au porche de Saint-André-des-Champs. Jamais ne s'y trouvait la paysanne que je ne sais pas manquer d'y rencontrer. That's Natalie Vanderlinden, reading from the first volume of In Search of Lost Time. She's from Belgium and lives in San Francisco. She set out to read all of Proust because she was looking to be transported. C'était sans espoir que mon attention s'attachait. It started with a desire to really uh, reconnect with my culture. Who I am is the language I speak. And so she began. I read the book in 19 hours uh, with just interruption for drinking tea or eating a piece of orange or using the bathroom. Now, she says, the only proof she has that this happened at all is that it transformed her. It was like existing in multiple places at once. After the, the performance, I was still not sure where I was. 
I was waiting so much for some part of the story to come and it was in the middle of the night. I was thinking, did I dream that part? Did I dream it? But no, it's because the part I was thinking about is in the second novel. The goal was to experience the words physically, following every story, every memory, the twists and turns of time, and then later on the bumps and screeches of subway trains. 10 car train for San Francisco airport in nine minutes. She decided to bring the experience of Proust to the commuters of San Francisco. As she read out loud in French, passengers stopped to listen for brief moments. It's like a big poem to me. It's so beautiful that it's, you can actually carry it with your day and that's good enough. The subway Proust readings are on hold right now. But Natalie's goal is still to finish reading all seven volumes, because after all... The seventh book is when is finding the time again. I want, would like to finish that journey one day. In the meantime, she still has the memory of reading In Search of Lost Time on subway trains. Proust might even describe the experience as being fixed forever in memory. The general excitement of being in a strange place, of doing unusual things. Ten for Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks, Holly, for that great piece about one of my favorite authors. I'm Josh Landy. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. And today, on our 500th episode, we're compiling our annual summer reading list. And it's about time. So what exactly is time? And what isn't it? For help with these basic yet slippery questions, we turn to physicist Carlo Rovelli, author of Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, and more recently, The Order of Time. So in this new book, Carlo summarizes years of research on the problem of time, which he says has fascinated him since childhood. So what is the problem of time? There are many problems of time. <laughs> the first one is that time definitely does not work in the way we usually think about it. Uh, for instance, we think of time as something common uh, all over, so that if we take two clocks and separate the two clocks, when they come back, they, have the, they, they measure the same time. It's just the time passed between separation and, uh, and when the two clocks meet again. But that's false. That's only an approximation. If we have precise clocks, we see that uh, clocks measure different times depending where they are. So does that mean that it could be a different time for Josh than for me? Like Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how tall you are, but the, the one of you, I, I don't want to know. I think Josh is the, taller. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Josh's brain uh, is going to live uh, uh, a little bit uh, uh, longer than you. So when you meet, you're going to be younger. And he has been older than, than you. That's a fact. So, I mean, it can be checked in the laboratory. The reason we are not used to this strangeness uh, is because um, in our environment, this phenomenon is not very strong. I mean, you have to go in a bigger planet or near a black hole to, to, for this phenomenon to become very, very, very strong. Another one, uh, which to me is the most striking at all, this is a, a bit harder to describe, but is the fact that the notion of present, it's really an approximation. There is no really notion, well-defined notion of present in the in, in the universe, and and the thing goes like that. I mean, you and I are having conversation, and uh, we are in the same time, right? I can hear you now, and you can hear me now, but actually, uh, there is a little delay in our way of communicating because. Uh, 
uh, it takes time for any light or signal or form noise to go from me to you. So I actually hear you a little bit in the past. And if I look around me, I see things in the past, right? Because time, light takes time to fly from the things to my eye. So present literally doesn't mean anything. If you ask what is happening right now in a different galaxy, there is no meaning into that. And any meaning that you can give to the now there, it's contradicted by some obvious situation that makes it nonsense. Okay, so there's no present, but surely there's a past and a future, right? So isn't, isn't the present just the stuff that's not past and the stuff that's not future? There is a here and now. Right. For each of us, there's a here and now, and there's my past and my future, uh, which are definitely different than your past and your future. So there, there is a relational past and future, of course. There's a past and future for you, meaning uh, everything you can see more or less is your past, and anything I can see more or less is my past. But they don't match. So the effect on, the, on our notion of what it means to be real it's dramatic, right? If, you, if I want to say that what is real is real now, I'm just lost. doesn't square with, with today's physics. Does, it, does any of this have to do with the binding problem uh, in neuroscience? I mean, we have to, our, our minds have to take a variety of sensory input and bind them together into a single representation of things that we take to be happening now. And that, of course, takes a little bit of time. Is that the extension of what we each take to be our present moment, that little window of time in which the various sensory inputs come in and are bound together? I think that uh, uh, the answer is no. And that's one of the key uh, themes of my book. Uh, what we mean by time, uh, it's not really the clock time, it's something else. We have memories and uh, uh, we anticipate the future. In fact, According to at least some current neuroscience, that's the, 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 the main thing that our brain does. Our brain accumulates uh, memories and trying to anticipate the future. So for us, the time is this uh, uh, complicated thing about memory, future, integrating signals that arrive. And uh, this is time for us. It's not the time of the clock. Clocks don't, don't have memories, don't think about future. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 uh, this is a very specific thing for us humans. So we make a mistake when we try to project uh, um, these complicated experiential times uh, down to physics. And vice versa, we make a mistake by thinking that our experiential time is just uh, the time of physics. And, and in philosophy, this is an idea which is, uh, is not new. I mean, Husserl has uh, uh, discussed that a, lo a, a long, um, retention and uh, the, the fact that time and Augustine. And St. Augustine. In fact, I think it's, a, it's the great intuition of St. Augustine. When, when he says, uh, um, how is it possible that I hear a musical phrase uh, given the fact that in each moment I'm in one single moment of time, so I should hear one note at a time, what, how do I get the sense of the music? And then he, from that, he goes on saying, well, time for me is really memory and the memory and anticipation. And I think he's uh, absolutely right there. It seems like a lot of non-human objects have memories too. Certainly other organisms. So... Uh, trees sort of grow rings and they can be used as historical records. Like rocks kind of 
erode in one way and don't exactly unerode backwards in the yes. other way. Uh, so it seems like some kind of memory is part of the natural world and not just of us as human beings. How do I square that with, with the idea that sort of memory is a human perspective dependent thing? Time is not one thing. It's a layer of things. And in the macroscopic physical picture, which is not our brain, it's just nature described by macroscopic variables, there is heat, there is temperature, there is uh, thermodynamics, there is entropy that grows, and there are traces. Traces, ah. what, you, what you just mentioned, traces, are absolutely not something that our brain imagines, right? Uh, on the moon, there is a crater, and the crater is there because a, a meteorite fell on the moon in the past, not in the future. So that's a trace. So traces are out there, no doubt. Uh, but traces are a funny thing because uh, if you think microscopically, if you, if you knew all the details of the phenomena, using the equation of motion, you can evolve back and forth. So in the present, there's perfect knowledge of the past and the future, while traces is only the past. So what is it? How is it possible? You mentioned entropy, and entropy is usually the fact that gets physicists thinking that, in fact, time does have an arrow, does have a direction, right? That yeah. The universe yeah. started in a low entropy state, and we're gradually heading towards higher entropy states, and that's why your, your glass breaks when you drop it, and it doesn't magically yeah. usually get put back together. Um, it just makes me wonder whether, in fact, there aren't some things we can say objectively about time, right? So maybe I can't say that there's an objective present moment, but isn't there something like an objective shape of time, right? That time has an arrow wherever you are in the universe. It's not that it's subjective what we say about the world. It's not also subjective either what we say about um, that involves ourselves. Uh, a sunrise is not subjective thing. It's just a perspectival thing. It's different. Um, right. I think the, the mistake we make about time is that uh, we have an intuition. Okay, I have an intuition about what time is. It flows, it passes, past, future, present, blah, blah. Either it is like that, or it's not like that. It's mysterious, it's, uh, um, it's, it's illusory, it doesn't exist. Uh, uh, there isn't one thing about time. Time, it, there's many things about time. The arrow is just one of them. The, the distinction between past and future is just one of them. The fact of flowing is another one. The fact of being common for all of them is another one. Each one of these aspects of what we call time is rooted in a different uh, uh, level, in a different uh, set of phenomena, in a different science that we use for describing this phenomena. Um, if you go down, down to quantum gravity, we don't use any time variable at all. We only use relative variables. So. And if I may conclude, uh, one last part of this pile of things, which is time. Uh, um, there is a, there's something that surprised me a lot. I, I read in, um, in Reichenbach, which is a, so an analytical philosophy, and I read in, in Heidegger, which is the opposite camp of philosophy, the same comment. Uh, which is that uh, every time we talk about time, you, there is something emotionally uh, non-neutral for us in time. And I think this is true, uh, strongly, because time interests us, all of us, right? It touches us. You ask me about time, we'll talk about time. And I think that uh, this emotion of time, uh, 
is not a uh, something that confuses us. We should get really to understand better. It's a very major part of what time is uh, for us, uh, because we are we as human beings are clearly time beings, right? We live in time. We think in time. We are we are a process that uh, involves temporality. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist. And not only that, but we. We anticipate the future. We we know we're gonna die, so time is what make us lose things, get things, and this emotion of time, I think, is again one core aspect of what time is for us. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.